Well, let me encourage all of you to keep your Bibles open there in Philippians chapter 3. We're going to be spending the bulk of our time right there in that passage. As we continue on in our series, where we're encouraged to find joy in Christ and joy in the Christian life. And it's there again, isn't it? Right there in in verse 1. Rejoice in the Lord, says Paul, guided by God's own Holy Spirit. Again, he urges us to rejoice. But before we dive into this passage, I want to reorient you to last week's message. In case you've forgotten, perhaps you weren't here with us. Last week, we considered the twofold example of Timothy and Epaphroditus, two Christian men who served God faithfully, two men whom Paul knew well, whom he set as an example for the church. These two men looked to the interests of Christ. They had the mindset of Christ, and Paul said, honor them and emulate them. Look at their example, give them what is due to them, and then copy them in your life and in your church. And having given us two prime examples of the Christian life well lived, Paul now shifts direction to confront those who are bad examples, to challenge the poor example of some in the church who were offering a false gospel, who were teaching error. And Paul will offer a critique here of that error and offer a warning to the church not to be drawn into their falsehood. Just as he encouraged us to look at Timothy and Epaphroditus, so he will encourage us to look away from the false teachers. And to do that, Paul encourages us to look to God. Once more, he will encourage Philippi and we, the church, to turn our attention toward God. This idea, this focus on our Lord, is the undergirding of all the teaching of Philippians. You want to know how to pray, says Paul? Look to Christ. You want to know how to have faith? Look to Christ. You want to know how to love one another? Look to Christ. How to be humble, how to serve, look to Jesus. And when he comes to this point saying, do you want to know how to resist falsehood and how to refute error? The answer is exactly the same. Look to Christ. Verse 1. Further, my brothers and sisters, rejoice in the Lord. It is no trouble for me to write the same things to you again. And it is a safeguard for you. Paul again unashamedly urges us to find our joy in Christ and in Christ alone. I've said it before and I'll say it again, says Paul. Find joy in Christ. Rejoice in the Lord. Look to what you have in Jesus. Why this time? Because it is a safeguard for you. Friends, of course, the question is, why does the church need a safeguard? Well, the answer is because we're under attack. 
The church has always, and until Christ calls us home, will remain under attack from the schemes of the devil, the error of flesh, the challenge of the world in which we live. We are told time and time again, are we not, that the journey is a narrow road, that it is a hard road to follow Christ. As we seek to work out our salvation, in the words of Philippians, we encounter resistance. As you, Christian, seek to follow Christ, you will be accosted. You will be confronted, tempted, assaulted. It won't be simple, but it will be worth it. So joyfully hold firm to Christ, says Paul, for he is, yes, the end goal, but he is also the protection on the journey. The foundation of Christ in our lives is the solid ground during the shaky times. The hope that we have in Christ is the anchor for your soul during the tempest of life. And faith in Christ, we know from Ephesians 6, is your shield to overcome the onslaught of the enemy. And here, says Paul, sincere joy in Christ looking at the one who is the way, the truth, and the life. Sincere joy in Christ is your safeguard in the face of error. When you find the fullness of Christ in your life, when you understand who he is and what he has done on your behalf, you'll be free from the temptation of worldly teaching and error that creeps into the church. Paul says there in verse 1, Further, my brothers and sisters, rejoice in the Lord. It is a safeguard for you. And then comes his specific warning to the church of Philippi. Verse 2, he says, Watch out for those dogs, those evildoers, those mutilators of the flesh. For it is we who are the circumcision, we who serve God by his spirit, who boast in Christ Jesus and who put no confidence in the flesh, though I myself have reasons for such confidence. Now, friends, what we need to understand is that at the time of the early church being established and really finding its way, finding its feet in the world for the first time, there were those who were resisting the gospel message. And some among them were a group called the circumcision group. Jews who were convinced that, yes, Jesus might be the Messiah, but we still need to retain the old ways. Jews still need to be circumcised, and new Christians should also be circumcised, taking on the burden of the law from the Old Testament. Paul says, don't listen to these people. And consider the terms he used to describe them. He calls them dogs. Now that is a term that those at the time would have been most familiar with. Ironically, dogs was a slang term that Jews used for Gentiles. Because dogs will eat anything. And Jews were not supposed to eat anything. It was a derogatory term used of the Gentiles, and here Paul turns it back on this circumcision party. No, no, they are the dogs. They are the ones who mutilate and cause harm unnecessarily. 
They force circumcision as necessary for salvation when we know in Christ that is no longer required. Paul calls them evildoers. Not only does he say that they are in error, that they are somehow a little mistaken. No, these men are evil. They're teaching Christ plus circumcision or Christ plus law and that is evil, says Paul. Christ alone and faith in Christ and the righteousness of Christ is all we need. Don't be tempted to listen or obey their evil ways. They are mutilators of the flesh. In the Greek, it's a play on word. They are the scission, the cutters, the circumcision party. And they are mistaken. What Paul is saying here to the church in Philippi is that the old covenant has been superseded by the new. The shadow of the old has given way to the reality and the substance of the new covenant in Christ so too has the sign of the old finished. Circumcision has been done away with. It is no longer a requirement for the men of God to carry that sign in their flesh. And so do not entertain them, says Paul. Do not listen to them. It seemed that this was quite a common problem in the early church. Paul addressed it in a number of places, but he addressed it at length when he spoke to the Galatians. In Galatians 5 verse 6, he said, For it is for in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision has any value. The only thing that counts is faith expressing itself through love. A little further in Galatians 6 verse 15, he said, Neither circumcision nor uncircumcision means anything. What counts is the new creation, being found in Christ and born again. Well, friends, why does this matter? And how does it impact us? Well, Paul says it matters because those in Christ are the true circumcision. We are marked in our hearts, not our flesh, sealed by the Spirit, not some outward sign. We are the ones who worship or serve in spirit and in truth. We are the ones, says Paul, who boast only in Christ, in his work, in his death, in his resurrection, his grace, his salvation, and the faith that he grants. Paul says to the church in Philippi and to the church today, Christ plus nothing is what you need. Not circumcision, not worldly deeds, not our own strength or our own righteousness. Christ alone, faith alone, grace alone. So have joy in that, friends, and watch out for any who teach otherwise. Now, brothers and sisters, you know that it is unlikely in this day and age that we are going to encounter the circumcision party coming into our church preaching that we must be circumcised to be saved. It's unlikely that that is going to happen. But Paul's warning carries on regardless of those who are preaching falsehood. Anyone who is preaching Christ plus something for salvation is in error. Any who would add to the work of Christ amount to nothing, would say Paul. Now, don't mishear me. Be very careful. Don't mishear me here. 
Christ does have expectations of work for the life of his people. James reminds us that faith without works is dead. Even in Philippians, we've been urged to work out our salvation. We are called to do the good works that God has prepared in advance for us to do. But salvation and the security in Christ comes from faith in Christ alone. And there is a big difference between living a life of obedience to God, working out our salvation as he instructs, and thinking that we in some way have contributed something, anything, to our own salvation. Paul is firm and consistent throughout his New Testament writings that we contribute nothing to our own salvation. And if you want to know how he can be so sure of that, says Paul here in Philippians, look at his own example. He offers the example of himself. We put no confidence in the flesh, he says at the end of verse 3, though I myself have reasons for such confidence. Paul is now going to list his credentials and he's going to show us that weighed against Christ, they actually have no credit. Continues in verse 4. If someone else thinks they have reason to put confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, in regard to the law, a Pharisee, as for zeal, persecuting the church, as for righteousness based on the law, faultless. This is Paul's assessment of himself. And on paper, Paul is the perfect contender for earning his own salvation. Look at the things that he lists there. He is ritually pure, living in full accordance with the laws of the Old Testament, even circumcised on the exact day that the law instructed. He has been unwavering in his steadfastness and his obedience to the law, excelling to the point where he was appointed as a Pharisee. He considered himself faultless when measured against the law. He describes himself there not only as an Israelite of the true people of God, but of the tribe of Benjamin, the most favored of tribes and one of the few that did not turn its back on God. He is a Hebrew of Hebrews. We use that same methodology when we refer to Christ as the King of Kings or Lord of Lords. The Hebrew of Hebrews is the greatest of Hebrews. He was a Hebrew of the highest order, literally faultless. But all those credentials, says Paul, amount to nothing. They achieve nothing. Salvation, Paul's salvation, your salvation, has come through Christ and only Christ. Paul is saying that if he can't be saved on merit, no one can. Friends, how easy it is for us to be tempted to think that we contribute. 
I go to church regularly. I give to charity and I give generously. I've been a missionary or I've told someone the gospel. I pray. I'm a pastor. The list could go on and on. And these are all good things to be sure, provided they are responses to the grace already received in Christ. If they are done in an attempt to win salvation, to earn salvation, then they are in error. If we think such actions have any merit in themselves, we are so very, very mistaken. And Paul says, don't listen to any who would teach you otherwise. Find joy, brothers and sisters, in the knowledge that Christ is all-sufficient, that we are saved through him and not our own strength. And what joyous news that is. For if our salvation depended on our own strength and our own deeds, we would all be lost eternally. Look to Christ, says Paul, and find joy in what he has done. The question, of course, that comes to our minds now is, what are you resting on other than Christ? Perhaps not overtly, but in some dark corner of your mind, you think you've made a contribution that makes you worthy of salvation. Or perhaps you look to a friend, a family member, and though they're not following Christ, though they haven't repented and believed the gospel, you think perhaps God will have mercy on them because they're a good person, because they try hard, because they're tolerant and loving in our world. Maybe they're well-meaning, well-mannered, well-educated. Maybe financially they're well-off. All things the world affirms. Friends, without Christ, there is nothing. None can be saved but through faith in him. And in case the Philippians haven't quite grasped it from Paul's own example, he drives it home with the next few verses. We're coming into verse 7. Paul says, But whatever were gains to me, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them garbage that I may gain Christ and be found in him. Not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith. I want to know Christ Yes, to know the power of his resurrection, participation in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, and so somehow attaining to the resurrection from the dead. Friends, do you see what Paul is doing here? He takes out his hypothetical ledger and he begins to add things to the plus and minus column. 
This is Paul's profit and loss statement as he weighs the entirety of his whole life. Pro-con list, if you prefer. And on the one side is literally everything he has ever done. All those things that he might be tempted to believe have somehow merited favor with God or earned his own salvation. All of his worldly credentials. He puts them on one side and on the other side is but one word, Christ. All is weighed as loss, says Paul, compared to Christ. Nothing that the great apostle had done, nothing that he had learned or taught or fought for is worth anything. I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. He says everything but Christ is futile. He almost curses saying it's crap. All that matters is knowing Christ. Brothers and sisters, what we need to see here is that as this letter reached the Philippian church, Paul was the man held in great esteem. The Jews in their midst would have killed for Paul's pedigree, for his status, for his knowledge, for his zeal. And Paul says it's all worthless. It's all rubbish. The only thing that matters is Christ. That's why Paul will say again and again, rejoice in the Lord. Because by grace we have received the Lord. Paul says, I know him. I know him who was before all and above all and now sits on the throne of heaven. The one before whom every knee will bow and every tongue confess. I know him. And I want to know him more, says Paul. He who is the source of true joy and true hope and true love. He who sustains and supplies me in the hard times. He who is my comfort and my rock when life is tough. He who is my strength when I am weak, my anchor when I am being blown about, my salvation, my Lord, my God, I know him, says Paul. And I want to know him more. I want nothing else than to know him more because by God's grace I've been found in Christ and he's all that matters. How could anything else measure up to knowing Christ? How could anything in this world matter more than knowing Christ? I consider them garbage, says Paul, that I may gain Christ and be found in him. Are you there in your life, brothers and sisters? Am I there in my life? Have you come to the full realization of what you have in Jesus do you want to know more of him? Do you want nothing else but more of Christ in your life and in the life of those around you? Would you give away all things? Your status, your comfort, the leisures, the world, the flesh, 
all of the credentials that you might hold in this column, would you consider them rubbish to know more of Christ? It should be the greatest desire of every Christian to know more of our Lord Jesus, to know the joy that comes in bearing his name, in anticipating joining with him in suffering, in death, and ultimately in resurrection. And so Paul here, writing to Philippi, and I trust to us, says, flee from anything that teaches you otherwise. Flee from falsehood. Pursue Christ. Friends, I'm going to end here by offering up a prayer that Paul himself wrote, found not in Philippians but in Ephesians. Feel free to close your eyes as I pray or read along. I'll be in Ephesians chapter 3, praying from verse 14. For this reason, I kneel before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth derives its name. I pray that out of his glorious riches... He may strengthen you with power through his spirit in your inner being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. And I pray that you, being rooted and established in love, may have power together with all the Lord's holy people to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ and to know this love that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. Amen, brothers and sisters. Amen.